Well, a number of years ago, I was at a Christian conference. I can't even exactly remember where or when this was, but I do remember we were in a fairly large city. Here's what I remember. Being dismissed for lunch. Because the conference didn't provide meals, but they, they'd given us a nice long list of local restaurants. And anyway, the, the morning session was over, and so one of the conference organizers stood up to give us a few announcements. And then he dismissed us for lunch. And this is what he said. He said something like this. Now, I know I shouldn't have to say this, but please, as we're going to get lunch, please remember to be a blessing to the people who are serving you at the restaurants. Please be kind to the waitstaff. Tip generously. Remember that you bear the name of Christ and your conduct is going to reflect upon this conference and it will have an impact on the reputation of our host church in this community. Now, I wish that man didn't have to say that. He wished he didn't have to say it. But unfortunately, he knew that in parts of the American restaurant industry, the Sunday after church crowd has a reputation for being rude, demanding, unkind, hard to please, and stingy. And this man did not want the conference attendees to go out and give that ungodly Impression. Because what happens when professing Christians behave in ungodly ways? Their behavior denies the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be squared with ungodliness. Rather, the gospel of Jesus Christ always produces godliness expressed in good works. That, my friends, is the message of Titus in a nutshell. The gospel of Jesus Christ produces godliness expressed in good works. Good works from gospel soil. This is God's design. And yet, And yet, until the Lord Jesus returns, the church will struggle with ungodliness. Every one of God's children, according to chapter 2, verse 12, is being trained by God's grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. But you know what? That implies that we're not fully trained yet. We're works in progress. Every true Christian is slowly and gradually, but truly, winning the victory against pockets of ungodliness that still linger in our renewed hearts. That's one thing. That's one way the church continues to struggle against ungodliness. Here's another. Here's something else the church has to contend with. That's people sometimes even teachers who are operating within the church under a false flag. They profess to know God, but their ungodly behavior demonstrates that they actually know nothing of God. And such people can cause significant harm. 
And all this means that the church of God has to be protected. And what the church needs, God provides. As we're going to see in this first chapter of Titus, God's intention, and you can see this, this little bulletin insert might help you, but the theme statement of of the message today, which I think is in keeping with Titus 1, God's intention is that the church should be protected by godly and able leaders who teach and defend the gospel, which is according to godliness. Before we dive into the details, let me briefly, briefly give you some background to the whole letter. The author is the Apostle Paul. And who's he writing to? Who is this guy, Titus? We don't know anything about him from the book of Acts, but he's mentioned multiple times by Paul in a number of his letters. It appears that Titus, along with Timothy, was one of Paul's most trusted helpers. And given particularly difficult tasks, he was someone who had been with Paul from early on in his apostolic ministry. Years before this, Titus was given the difficult task of going to the church in Corinth and confronting them about their sin and delivering to them a severe letter that we don't have, a severe letter from Paul to rebuke them. That was Titus's job, not particularly coveted, I imagine. Now, thankfully, the, the Corinthians responded very well to Titus's visit, and they repented. And God gave Titus a heart that was full of love for this really messy church, such that he eagerly went back to them a second time. So he's a, he's a pastor. He's got a pastor's heart, this guy. Another thing we know about Titus is he was a Gentile, not a Jew. Paul took Titus with him when he went up to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles and to make sure that his teaching and their teaching was consistent. And Paul had been all through what's now Turkey preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and telling them how they could be saved through faith in Jesus and they didn't need to follow the law of Moses and they didn't need to be circumcised. They didn't need to become Jews in order to become Christians. Now Titus wasn't circumcised. And the other apostles didn't have any problem with that. So Titus is actually this kind of glorious test case. He was living proof that salvation in Jesus is by grace through faith and not by works of the law. So Paul here is writing to his beloved Gentile son. What kind of letter is he writing? I actually don't think it's a letter a personal letter quite for Titus alone. It's addressed to him, but there's a number of things that indicates that it's also supposed to be read out in the churches of Crete. They're supposed to overhear the letter. Because it's a letter that's intended to reinforce Titus's authority. The situation in Crete is kind of messy. And Paul doesn't want anyone to be saying, hey, why should we listen to you, Titus? You're nobody special. Well, Paul is writing to make it clear that that Titus is pretty special, actually. He's there at Paul's direction with all of his authority to act. Titus is not an apostle himself, but he is acting with the full backing of the apostle. And this is his assignment. He's on the island of Crete. If you know where Crete is, it's just a little lower from mainland Greece in the Mediterranean. Most likely, Paul visited Crete late in his ministry... So after he was, he was in Rome in prison and the book of Acts ends, then he was 
probably released from prison and made a number of other evangelistic trips. One of them was to Crete, and he planted a number of different churches there. And Titus went with him. Then it was eventually time for Paul to move on from Crete, but he knew, he knew these churches were young. He knew these churches were green, and they needed a lot of help still. So he leaves Titus there in Crete to help them get their feet under them until they have a solid leadership that can minister faithfully and teach the word. So that's the background to the letter. Now let's dive into the the text itself. Read with me again verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Well, obviously we've got the opening of a letter here. This is the greeting, but their letters aren't quite like our letters today. Instead of just saying, Dear Titus, it's me, Paul, this greeting's lots more involved. It's also highly intentional. Paul, right off the bat, introduces the big ideas of the letter. First, he does identify himself. Paul what? A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. These are titles of both great humility and great authority. He's a bondservant of God. That means he has no rights over himself. He is completely at God's disposal and God's direction. He's also an apostle of Jesus, a sent one of Jesus, commissioned by the risen king to go out and proclaim the gospel. So if we take the two together, these two identities that Paul claims for himself are really powerful. He is God's man. He speaks God's words. He's doing God's work. He speaks for Jesus, and we must listen to him. And while you're at it, the Cretans who are overhearing this, listen to Titus because he's acting in Paul's place. Make sense? Paul then goes on to explain the purpose of his apostleship. Why did Jesus call him? Why did Jesus send him out? What's the end of verse 1? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Friends, that is the goal. That's God's master plan, and it's what Paul is laboring for. The faith of God's elect, the people of God, those whom he has chosen by his grace to receive salvation. Paul is working that the elect will come to faith. Now, he doesn't know who God has chosen any more than you or I do. So what does he do? He preaches the gospel to everyone, knowing that Jesus will take care of making sure that his sheep hear his voice and follow him and come to him. Paul's job is to preach the gospel. Now in chapters 2 and 3, we'll get to, hear, we'll, we'll get to lay out 
the message that he preaches. He preaches the gospel all through this letter. Here's it, here it is in brief, and I've tried to give it a Titus-esque flavor. Here is the message. All mankind, including me, including you, all mankind starts off in a state of disobedience and rebellion against our Creator. And this disobedience has led to chaos. Everyone is living, as chapter 3 says, enslaved to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's the natural state of mankind. But God. But God intervened and reached down into our mess because he's a saving God. The fact that God is the Savior and Jesus Christ is the Savior is peppered all the way through the book. He's a saving God. He loves to save. He loves to save sinners. And so his goodness and his loving kindness appeared when he sent to us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent him into the world to be the Savior. And even though we deserve death because of our sins, Jesus willingly gave himself, offered up his own life, in place of sinners when he died on the cross. He offered his own life as the ransom payment to buy us back out of slavery, to redeem countless sinners. And this salvation is not based on good works. You don't get to receive it by working really hard for it. That's really good because you really can't. But it's simply because of God's mercy simply because of God's free grace that if you will look to Jesus, his son, and you will believe on him, you'll be born again to a new life. You'll be made new by God's Holy Spirit and all your sins will be forgiven and washed away. No longer will you be consumed as you were before by the evil of your sin, but now you'll actually be freed and able to do what is good. More than that, you'll have the hope of eternal life, that Jesus will one day appear again, come back, and take you and all his ransomed ones to live with him forever in glory. That is the gospel that Paul preaches to unbelievers, that they might believe and that they might be saved. And some of you here today may need to, for the first time, believe that gospel and be saved. This is the truth that he teaches to believers, that they might be built up and continue in the faith. Paul's working, working, working to promote gospel faith so that all of God's elect will know the truth the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus, the Father love of God, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And then notice, notice in, let's see, verse, the end of verse 1, how Paul says that the gospel accords with godliness. It's according to godliness. Bam, right off the bat, he wants to get practical. He wants to tell us how the gospel affects the way we live Sunday through Saturday. The gospel truth accords with godliness. It conforms to godliness. It leads to godliness in our lives. There's no real faith. 
no real knowledge of God without godliness. It, it just doesn't work. The gospel is according to godliness. Look at verse 2 again. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So where's all this gospel faith and knowledge and godliness headed? It's all leading to eternal life. That's been God's intention from before the beginning of the world. That his children would live forever with him. Now he knew that they would fall into sin. He knew they would rebel against him. And even before they sinned, even before they were made, he already had a rescue plan ready. And he promised that that there would be a way back home. No sooner had we died with Adam in the garden. Like, Adam and Eve still have fruit juice stains around their mouths. God tells them, I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send the seed of the woman, one of your own children, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent who's deceived you. I'm going to bring you back home, back to me. And God never lies. That's that's just a truth that Paul doesn't even try and defend. God never lies. So if he promised that, he will fulfill it. And throughout the ages, he has always held out the hope of eternal life through faith in his promise. But for a long time, a long time, a long time, a long time, God's people were waiting. When is it going to come? When is it going to fully be here? When is it going to get to us? And then at the proper time, God sent Jesus into the world to take our death and die in our place and then rise again. And he won for us that eternal life that God's people had been looking to for so long. But the eternal life doesn't go out to every single person. So how does God make the life available to us? How do people get access to the hope of eternal life? Well, verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. See, God manifests his word and that eternal life through preaching. That's where Paul fits in the plan. He's a preacher. And it's through preaching, the preaching that God entrusted to him, that's how the word is going out, and that's how you access the life. You hear the word and believe the gospel. The word of the gospel is the only conduit for eternal life, which is why you need to hear it. You need to heed it. You need to believe it. That's the plan. That's the plan. God sends out preachers. God's chosen ones hear the gospel of Jesus. They put their faith in him, and they're transformed by the knowledge of the truth, and they begin to live True lives of godliness. And all that whole project is undergirded by God's own character because it's based on eternal life, which He promised, and He can't lie. He promises that this is the pathway to eternal life preaching, faith, 
godliness, eternal life. That's what Paul's working for. But it's not a job that he can accomplish alone. And God doesn't intend for him to. The rest of the chapter is laying out God's strategy for how that plan's going to get accomplished. And you know what? It involves enlisting a whole cadre of qualified leaders and teachers who will also work for the faith of God's people. So it's not just Paul. Paul's training others who are training others who are going to continue this work of teaching the gospel. Look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, do you see God's strategy? We've got the plan. Now how's it going to be executed? What's the strategy? Paul stands at the head of a whole team of men who will be serving the churches of Crete for the long term. Paul is the apostle who's been directly commissioned by Jesus, but he can't be everywhere. He's left his faithful son, Titus, who's going to head up the gospel ministry in the short term on this island. But Titus isn't going to be there forever, and he can't do the whole job either. So one of his main responsibilities is to appoint godly men who are able to lead and teach in every particular local church. Now, who are these men? Paul calls them elders, and he calls them overseers. That's not two groups, by the way. It's two ways of referring to the same group. The term elder, which is the term we use here at RGC, the term elder calls to our minds the leaders of God's people in the Old Testament. It evokes ideas of wisdom, an experience, an insight into the ways of God. It does not literally mean that they need to be old men. But they should be, shall we say, seasoned in godliness. This word implies that God tasks these men. Oh, sorry, missed a point here. But then we also, so that's elder, but we also have the term overseer. Oversee, oversight. And that implies that God has also tasked these men to make sure that the churches are well-governed and well-managed and kept in good order. All right, so Titus is to appoint these qualified men as elders. What are the qualifications? Well, there's, there's mainly two. Their lives must be sound, and their teaching must be sound. First, we look at their, at their lives. Look verse 6. An elder must be above reproach. This is, this is a kind of a summary 
catch-all standard? A man, and let me stop there. Yes, elders must be men. This passage assumes it, but 1 Timothy 2 is explicit. Paul doesn't allow, and the Lord doesn't allow, women to teach authoritatively or exercise authority over men in the church. Men are to lead in God's church. It's not a difference in value, but God does give men and women different roles, and leadership in his church is a task he assigns to men. So an elder must be a man, and a man of good conduct, so that no one can credibly accuse him of wrongdoing. He can't have a bad reputation with outsiders. He can't have a bad reputation with the church, within the church. He must be above reproach. He doesn't do anything to bring himself or the gospel into disrepute. His home has to be in order. He's a man who's faithful to his wife, if he has one. I don't think this excludes a single guy. But an elder must be a one-woman man. That's literally what the text means, husband of one wife. He's a one-woman man. He's faithful to his wife. Any children that he has are faithful. Now, our text, the ESV uses the word believer, and I don't think that's quite true. I think that's too strong. I don't think it means whether or not they have a saving relationship with God yet. What I think it means is that the kids are living well under his authority. They're not wild. They're not insubordinate. He needs to be able to manage God's house because he's God's steward, so he obviously first needs to be able to manage his own house and his own children. Then Paul goes on. He gives gives a list of things the elders must not be and a list of things that they must be. We're not going to linger here. You can go into details with a good Bible dictionary. The elder must not be proud. He must not be quick to a fight. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be greedy. And we're going to see there's lots of people like that in the Cretan churches, or at least a number of people like that. Instead, he has to be quick to welcome people. He must love what is good, and he must be self-controlled. He must have himself under control. Now let me draw your attention to something. Think about the standard for an elder's character. It's not actually like un- almost unattainably high. These are qualities that every believing man in here needs to be striving for. They're pretty basic. We're not talking about a different kind of godliness. This is just the faithful, consistent practice of regular godliness. The elder's character is that of basic, mature Christianity. Note for later in the sermon, that means it's something to be able to, that you can able to be to aspire to. Okay, his life is sound, and his teaching also is sound. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught. He's got to stick to the gospel. He's got to stay on the line, and that allows him to do two things. He can instruct the church in sound doctrine, and he can rebuke those who would contradict the truth. So these are the qualified men that Titus is to identify and to appoint as leaders for the churches. Sound men. Godly men. 
faithful to the truth, able to teach it. A whole team of guys all over the island, all over the world, who, like Paul, are laboring for the faith of God's people and protecting the gospel. And now we're going to see why that's so important, because there already are a number of problems in these young Cretan churches. Pick it up again at verse 10. For there are many, for, that means, in other words, you need to appoint these godly and able elders because, because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What are we looking at? False teaching and bad living. It looks like a number of folks, probably from a Jewish background, because he calls them the circumcision party, are causing all sorts of problems in Crete. We don't know exactly what they're promoting, but there are some similarities between Titus and 1 Timothy. And if they're dealing with the same thing, this might have been some kind of hot mess of immorality, mystic fables from Judaism, ascetic restrictions like don't touch this, don't taste that, do, these, do, do all these rules, and a love of money. And these, these nasty guys are going around in the Cretan churches upsetting households causing division, promoting false doctrines that aren't the gospel, and indulging their pleasures. They're bad guys. Now, how is the church going to be protected from these ungodly deceivers? It's through the work, the labor of godly, able leaders who will live and teach the truth. So that's God's strategy. He's going to employ faithful shepherds to protect the flock and defend the faith until Jesus, the great shepherd, returns. And Titus and the elders that he appoints, they have to be bold. They have to be steadfast. They have to be even stern. They can't be too polite about this job because the troublemakers have to be silenced. The Cretan believers are susceptible to being led astray. So there's danger here. There's real danger. So Paul quotes that that ancient Cretan poet. His name was Epimenides. He wasn't really a prophet. Paul's just using that as a term to say someone who said something really insightful. And he said, we're liars, we're evil beasts, and we're lazy gluttons. That's who we are. And Paul's like, yeah, that's that's actually kind of true. That's the cultural background that these young believers have been saved out of. That's who they used to be. So these churches are vulnerable because they're surrounded by an ungodly culture and they've been infiltrated by ungodly people. They could easily go off the rails. They could 
easily listen to these guys and go off into an ungodliness that's just totally out of keeping with the gospel. So Paul calls Titus, and by extension the elders, to have a ministry of rebuke. They're to silence the troublemakers. Of course they're supposed to do that, but I I think they're actually also called to rebuke the believers who are being tempted to listen to the troublemakers. They're supposed to reprove and exhort the believers so that they will be sound in the faith and not give themselves to all this nonsense that's being trotted out by the deceivers. Friends, sometimes when God's people are going astray, a sharp word is needed to get them on track. And I want to ask you, would you ever have a category that you might one day need a sharp word of rebuke from one of your elders because they're seeing you go off track? If that's a category that you just automatically recoil from, that there's no way that you'd stand for that, I ask you to consider what Paul's saying. God's people sometimes need stern rebuke in order to keep them on the road of faithfulness. And it's not comfortable for the rebuker or the rebukee. But that's a tool that these elders have to have, our elders have to have in their tool belts. Because the stakes are so high. We're talking about eternal life and staying on the road to eternal life. See, faith in Jesus, the truth of the gospel, godliness, the hope of eternal life. They've got to stick to the plan. They've got to stick to the design. Here's what the danger is. It's a false and worthless Christianity. A false and worthless Christianity. And I can't say that there's none of us here in this room that don't have a false might not have a false and worthless Christianity. Look back at verse 16. These people who have turned away from the truth, they profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These are real people, guys. These aren't just some construct. Paul's talking about real people who he calls detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. They profess to know God. They claim Jesus as their Savior. They've confessed Christ. They've been baptized. They're going around town claiming to be Christians, but their conduct reveals that they're lying. Their deeds bring shame upon the name of Christ. Their ungodly behavior reveals that their faith is a lie. And if they do not repent, they will lose out on eternal life because the gospel is in accordance with godliness, not with immorality. Beloved, let me apply this text for us in a couple of ways. First, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Don't fall away from a gospel which accords with godliness. Salvation, praise God, is by grace. God justifies the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't earn it by our works. It's a gift of grace. But, 
But now that we are God's children, grace trains us. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and instead to be zealous for good works that we're now actually able to do. Works do not save us. All who are saved have good works. Is the gospel that you profess matched? Is it matched by godliness in your life? If not, are you willing to face up to that? Are you willing to repent? As we go through this wonderful little book of Titus, where it's going to go back and back and back to the same themes, are you willing to be trained so that you can devote yourselves to good works, as it says at the end of the book. Devoted to good works. Now, some of you might even be unsettled because maybe for the first time in a long time you're being honest and you see that there's actually little evidence of godliness or of holiness or of pursuit of God in your life. Are you willing to ask hard questions? Are you willing to consider the possibility that you might not truly be in Christ? That you, like them, might still be defiled and unbelieving? Would you be willing today to humble yourself and confide to a trusted, mature believer? How about one of our elders who are tasked to fight for your faith? What if you were to go to one of them and say, what's going on with me? How can I come to know a gospel that has power, a gospel that's actually according to godliness? Any one of them would be happy to sit down and talk with you and help you and open the scriptures with you and point out to you the Jesus who actually redeems and purifies the ones that he loved and died for. That's something all of us can think. Can think of, is my life reflecting a gospel that's according to godliness? Or am I telling a different story? Now I want to narrow the target. My my fellow elders, my fellow elders tasked by God to lead Redeeming Grace Church, and the rest of you listen in, This is a precious and largely healthy, but certainly vulnerable congregation of God's people. And we love it. So brothers, let us be faithful. Let us be faithful in our task to defend the gospel which is according to godliness. So brothers, are we working hard? Let us work hard to instruct God's precious people. Let us stand ready. Let us be equipped to fend off false teaching when it makes its way into our church, as it inevitably will from time to time. Let us be willing in love to do the really hard and necessary thing to rebuke ungodliness within the church in our, in our dear brothers and sisters whom we love. Let us lead by example, living lives of godliness that are above reproach. 
Not perfect, but pace-setting. Brothers, we, we must work to promote the faith of God's elect. We must labor for the souls of our people. This is our task. And now, men of RGC, let me ask you. I'd ask you to consider, might God be leading you to take on this labor? Rise up, O men of God. The church for you doth wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. Guys, do you see how the church needs able, faithful men to lead her and protect her? Under shepherds who will labor under the authority of the good shepherd to take care of this wonderful flock. Will some of you step up? We're going to need more elders in the coming years. Men who will lead the next generation of RGC. Men who can send, be sent out to lead in church plants or in revitalizations that are coming in the future. We can't plant. We can't revitalize if we don't have elder qualified men to send. We need more elders. Men who are godly. Men who are able to teach. Men who are equipped. Jesus commissioned Paul. Paul commissioned Titus. Titus appointed elders. Elders, elders all the way down. God's intention is that sound men should be raised up who will link arms to preserve and promote the faith of the elect and defend the gospel. Is that something you aspire to? Aspiration. It's a a good thing. Ambition. It's kind of looked down on in our world, but it's actually, a, when, when channeled toward righteousness, it's a wonderful thing. Paul tells Timothy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This work is hard, but it's glorious. It's glorious. I wish you could be with me in, in the counseling rooms that have been going on in the last six months as person after person is, is, is getting to encounter the gospel. It's glorious work. It comes with great reward. Paul tell, or sorry, Peter tells his faithful fellow elders that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Does, does that sound desirable to you? Now, the office of elder is not for everyone. An elder must teach, and not all men are gifted in teaching. That is not a problem. That's a feature, not a bug. But men, even if you don't aspire to be an elder, do aspire to be qualified in your character. Remember, not much different between the character of an elder and just ordinary, godly, mature Christianity. Do you aspire to be qualified in your character that you would be godly men above reproach? And some of you should aspire to be qualified to be elders. It's a good desire. If you've sensed those stirrings, ask yourself, what do you lack? Ask, go to to mature older men. What do I need to, to work on? What do you see in my life? How can I grow? Seek to be equipped in the work of teaching and of soul care. Ask BJ for resources. You know he'll give you a like, book list of about 20 different books. Just pick one. Ask us for resources that you might be sound in the gospel. I want to 
chapter one layer down and talk to you young boys, you know, high schoolers, junior hires, elementary school kids, my sons, your peers. Boys, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do when you grow up? Right now, you want to get ready to be firefighters and astronauts and architects and electricians and engineers and police officers. And that's fantastic. But let me ask you this. Do you also think about getting ready to be leaders in God's church? Are you aspiring to grow up to be a man of godliness? And some of you ought to start dreaming about being pastors and evangelists and missionaries. Because the church is going to need you boys. When the men of my generation have finished our race and have gone to be with Jesus, you're going to be here, and the church is going to be here, and they're going to need some of you to serve in this way. Will you guys be ready to teach the gospel and protect the church and defend the faith? This is God's design. That the gospel be preached and taught by faithful men. That God's elect be saved as they believe it and be taught and instructed in the truth which is according to godliness that actually leads to godliness. The gospel is according to godliness. It actually transforms our character so that we actually walk in holiness like our Lord Jesus does. Isn't that what we want, guys? Isn't that what we want, RGC? May he work this in us, according to his glorious plan, that we might be a godly church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that this comes from you. This is a gift of you that the gospel would remain strong at any given local church and that the leadership would remain godly and that the leadership would remain competent and that your people would be instructed in godliness and actually live lives that redound to your glory. This is all gift. It's not anything we can manufacture. So we pray for us. We pray that you would protect us. We pray that you would preserve us. We pray that we would live, live lives that are consonant with godliness. And we pray for you to give us leaders and continue to give us leaders who will shepherd us in that, in that gospel life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.